Well, good morning, sisters and brothers. Uh, we're now at uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. Uh, so let me lead us in prayer, uh, and we'll look at the passage together. Uh, Heavenly Father, we pray that you'll continue to speak to us uh, by your Spirit, through your Word, uh, as we consider this passage together. Uh, may you help us to see uh, how we ought to live uh, in these times of trial. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. At the time of this recording, the COVID situation in our country is continuing to get worse. Our daily cases are now in five digits. We all know people who have been infected with the virus. Some of them are in our church. Uh, many of us know people who have died from it. Uh, some of them are in our own families. We've seen the images of people lining up to be treated. And we know our frontliners in hospitals and treatment centers are battling physical tiredness and emotional drain as wave after wave of people appear who need treatment. And at the same time, the lockdown remains, and the economic impact of that is being acutely felt. And it's felt most keenly by people who need to work each day for the food they eat that day. And in a pandemic, work is hard to come by. In the midst of these trials, the Holy Spirit has been reminding us through Peter who we are. We are elect exiles, chosen by the Father to be set apart by the Spirit for obedience to the Son and sprinkling with His blood. And so we are a people with hope. No matter how bad things get here, if we trust in Jesus, then we have a hope in heaven. We have an inheritance there that can never perish or spoil and fade, and nothing can rob us of that. Even if we get sick and die, we still get to enjoy our eternal inheritance. And God has given us a new birth into this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so in the midst of trials and difficulties, we need to discipline our minds to set our hope fully on that grace that is to come. God has fulfilled his promises in the past by, by giving his son to die for our sins and to rise again. So we can be sure that this salvation will come. And this assurance leads to a change in conduct. The stress of these trials is not an excuse for bad conduct, is it? The stress of these trials is not an excuse not to think about conduct. It was to Christians under trial that the Holy Spirit said through Peter, Be holy as I am holy. It was to Christians under trial that Peter warned to, to, to conduct themselves with fear because they have been bought and paid for with nothing less than the precious blood of Christ. It was to Christians under trial that Peter urged to love one another deeply because that's what they were saved for. It was to Christians under trial that Peter urged to long for the pure spiritual milk of the gospel that they might grow. It was Christians under trial that Peter said were a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices to God. And those sacrifices were their holy, godly, and loving behaviors in the midst of trials. For they were a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that they might declare the excellencies of him who brought them out of darkness into his wonderful light. That did not stop when they were under trial. And so we don't stop thinking about how to live godly lives because things are so terrible all around us. In fact, it's all the more reason why we should. At least with the trials that we face at the moment, everyone in the country has got a common enemy, COVID-19, and the health and economic impact it brings. 
back then, the common enemy for many people was the Christians themselves. But Peter said in last week, in chapter 2, verse 12, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, that is the non-Christians, honourable, so that when they speak of you or speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Keep your conduct honourable, he says. But what does honourable conduct look like? Well, Peter shows us in four different areas. Last week we looked at the first two. We, see, we saw that we should be subject to those in authority over us in the government, and then we saw how slaves were to be subject to their masters. Uh, and this week, we look at how this applies to marriage, in chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, and then within the Christian community, in, verses three, in chapter 3, verses 8 to 12. Before we look at this, though, let me acknowledge that some of us might find a section about submission a little bit difficult. And let me remind you that having different roles in no way undermines equality and dignity. Uh, we will see Peter affirms the equality of women and men uh, in this passage, and at the same time calls on wives to submit to their husbands. Uh, equality and submission can coexist. Uh, you are in no way inferior to the policeman who directs the traffic, but you do what he says because of the role he's in. Uh, Jesus himself submitted to Mary and Joseph as his parents, but his submission in no way implied inferiority. Uh, you can be equal, but different. Submission means yielding to the leadership of the person who is meant to be leading us, without saying that we are anything less, that we are any less than the person we are submitting to. Submission is following the example of the Lord Jesus. Now, Peter says to wives, in the first half of verse 1, be subject or submit to your own husbands. And not because he is better or smarter or has a more dominant personality, but, but for the same reason that Christian citizens submit to the authorities and the Christian slaves submit to their masters, it is for the Lord. The Christian wife understands that God has placed her under the leadership of her husband. Not every man in the congregation, mind you, but her own husband. And she deliberately and freely allows him to lead her, even if he is not a Christian, or in the words of verse 1, does not obey the word. Now, of course, if you are single, then you should choose to marry a non-Christian spouse, but, but if you are already married to a non-Christian uh, for whatever reason, God does not want you to use your commitment to Christ as an excuse for breaking up your marriage. Now, don't seek to divorce him. Instead, seek to win him to Christ. But notice that Peter doesn't say, preach to him at breakfast, harass him about the gospel at lunch, threaten to walk out on him at dinner uh, unless he goes with you to Christianity Explored. No, no, no. Look at verse 1 and 2 again. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Now, of course, that doesn't mean the husband never gets to hear the gospel. He must be told the gospel. In fact, he must have been told the word already. Otherwise, how could he disobey it? But he doesn't need to be nagged with the gospel. Now, seek to win him with your conduct that is respectful and pure. Now, Peter continues in verse 3. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, the putting on of clothing. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, 
with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, Peter's not saying that you can't braid your hair or wear gold jewelry, and he's definitely not saying at the end of verse 3 that you can't wear clothes. What he is saying is that you can't rely on those things to make you attractive. Your husband is not going to be attracted to the gospel by your stunning looks. What's more important is your inner beauty, the attractiveness of your conduct. Peter says in verse 4 that it is an imperishable beauty. Gold, braids, clothes will disappear in the end. But the beauty of godly character lasts forever. It is, in verse 4, the beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. The word translated gentle there is a word used of Jesus. It's the opposite of being arrogant or contentious, always wanting to fight, always insisting on your rights. It means being humble, considerate, and meek. And quiet there has nothing to do with whether or not you have a bubbly personality or even about the volume of your speech. Our quietness elsewhere in the Bible is the absence of civil strife. And so a quiet person is someone who doesn't try to stir up trouble. Someone who isn't argumentative. So submit to the leadership of your husbands. Be pure in your behavior. Don't be arrogant or overbearing or argumentative, always wanting to pick a fight. Be gentle, considerate, and peaceable. That's what makes you beautiful. This inner beauty approach actually is not without precedent. Uh, Peter goes back to the example of other holy women, women like Sarah, who in verse 5 hoped in God. Now They didn't live for this world. Their confidence was in the future that God would give them. And so they trusted God and submitted to their own husbands. There would have been times when obeying Abraham wouldn't seem like a good idea to Sarah, but she went along with him anyway. Peter says she called him her master. Now, it's a reference to a time where she laughed at herself that she couldn't have a baby because Abraham, her master, was too old. Uh, God made the promise, and she doubted. But even when she was doubting God's promise, the mental vocabulary that she used when thinking about her husband was respectful. Now, Peter doesn't say that all women are to express their respect of their husbands with the same vocabulary. The point is not what you call your husband, but the respect you show him. So don't be scared, he says in verse 6. Don't let your fears lead you into hostility and anger and argumentativeness. Don't let them cause you to desperately adorn yourself externally instead of concentrating on your character. Hope in God and do good, like Sarah. And this is not a guarantee that your husband will be saved. But if you've done this, then you've done your part. And the rest is between him and God. Peter then moves on to address husbands. But notice he does not tell husbands to enforce submission in their wives. That is never the husband's job. And just like wives are to respect their husbands, husbands are commanded to respect their wives. Uh, in verse 7, uh, tell, it, it tells husbands to live with their wives in an understanding way. Uh, so men, we need to make the effort to understand God's plans and purposes for life, as well as for marriage. We need to take the time to listen to God in the scriptures, and we also need to understand our wives. Uh, so if you lead your family in a Christian way, you must understand God's word, and you must be able to stand in your wife's shoes. Maybe to know how she thinks, how she feels, what is helpful, what is hurtful. Live with your wives according to understanding.
And secondly, Peter says in verse 7, show her honor as the weaker vessel. Right? It is just a fact that women are generally physically weaker than men. Now, there are many exceptions, of course. There might be some marriages between a, a small man and a big, strong lady. Uh, but generally, the husband is bigger and stronger than the wife. And sadly, men have often used this to threaten, abuse, or in other ways, be violent towards their wives. And friends, that is not acceptable to God and must not be acceptable in the Christian community. In times of lockdown like this, domestic violence tends to increase. Uh, if you're a victim of domestic violence and you need some help, please reach out. Uh, share with someone you trust or fill out a connection card. Ask someone from the pastoral team to get in contact with you. And brothers, listen to me now. Domestic violence is completely out of the question for the Christian man. God says you are to honor your wife as the weaker vessel, not to abuse your relative strength. And if you have been violent toward your wife, then you need to repent. And part of that is getting some help. If you don't know where you're going to go for help, reach out in the same way. But you cannot worship God and abuse your wife at the same time. The reason we are to treat wives with honor in verse 7 is that because they are heirs with us of the grace of life. Uh, we saw earlier in 1 Peter that we have an inheritance that can never perish or spoil or fade, kept in heaven for us. And that, and that applies to us equally, isn't it? Whether we are women or men. Uh, and so husbands and wives, while they have a different role in marriage, they share the same destiny. They share the same glory in the new creation. And so men must never look down upon women as being lesser or anything like that, for in the ultimate sense, they are equal. Uh, furthermore, the Holy Spirit says in verse 7, to show honor to the woman so that your prayers may not be hindered. If you fail to honor your wife properly, if you are abusive towards her in any way, if you don't respect her as an equal inheritor in God's kingdom, then you are doing evil. And let me warn you, as long as you persist in treating your wife in that way, God will turn his face against you and will not answer your prayers. That's what it says. The final part of this section deals with our life as a community. We are not only to live good lives among unbelievers, but also do it together, and that shows to our community. And that's a particularly hard thing to do during a lockdown, isn't it, when we don't see each other. Uh, we are told that two-thirds of communication is nonverbal, so it's very easy to misunderstand each other when we're only communicating by email or WhatsApp. And all the more reason, isn't it, to give each other the benefit of the doubt. And if something is said that can be interpreted in a good way or in an offensive way, then assume it's the good way until proven otherwise. In verse 8, Peter gives us five characteristics that should mark our common life. Unity of mind means having a common understanding of the gospel, common approach to gospel ministry. Uh, and of course, there'll be some areas where we have to agree to disagree in love, but, but even underlying that, there will be a rock-solid like-mindedness about the gospel and ministry based on the scriptures. We are to be united in the gospel. We are to have unity of mind. Now, the word sympathy means suffering together, co-suffering. Uh, and so we need to be deeply concerned about the pains and burdens and sorrows of each other. We need to be people who will not only rejoice with those who rejoice, 
but who will also weep with those who weep. We need to be a caring community. The third thing is brotherly love. We are to love and treat each other like family. We are to look out for each other, to care for each other, relating to each other with, with brotherly love. Now the next characteristic there is to have compassion or a tender heart. Uh, it means feeling for each other in the ups and downs. It means willing to forgive each other mistakes and blunders and offences. It's being tender-hearted towards each other. And finally, we are meant to have a humble mind. Our humility means treating other people as, as having a higher status than ourselves. And so in all our dealings with each other, we will show respect and honour to each other the way that people in the world only show to those who are above them in their pecking order. It doesn't mean we don't use God's gifts that he's entrusted to us for the sake of the body, but we wouldn't seek to do that in an arrogant or self-seeking way. We have to be humble. But even then, there will be times when we are treated wrongly. Sometimes it will be by accident. Sometimes it's just a pattern of behavior of the other party that they always show. Sometimes it might even be malicious. But when we are wrong, that is the opportunity to suffer sacrificially without taking revenge, just like Jesus. And so Peter goes on in verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. Right? There is no room for nasty vindictiveness in the church community. If people say bad things about us, we are not to go around spreading bad things about them. When people insult us, and uh, we're not to, to curse them, we're to bless them. When people do wrong to us, we're not to seek to do harm back to them. If we act in this way, we will be blessed because we are acting like Jesus. Now, this is not easy. Discipleship is not meant to be easy. And none of these things means that we can't take corrective measures. It doesn't mean that wives cannot take action to escape when they're in genuine danger from their husbands. It doesn't mean that people cannot take corrective action to, to prevent being repeatedly reviled. But it does mean that we will not be people who pay back evil for evil. We will not be people who take revenge. We would rather suffer wrong ourselves than to cause harm to others. And our community is to be one where we're all seeking to show unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender-heartedness, and humility. And one in which we do good to those who do evil to us, just as Jesus taught us to do. And friends, let me say, I see many of these traits in our church community at St. Mary's. We are diverse in many ways, and we have different opinions about many things. But I'm grateful that there is an overwhelmingly strong unity of mind when it comes to the gospel. I see sympathy, brotherly love, tender-heartedness in our community. I see people really caring for each other, especially when going through hardship. I see people showing concern and prayer and practical support unto those who are suffering. And that kind of care and support is, is even overflowing unto those outside the cathedral. And I'm thankful to God. But we must never take it for granted. We must never be satisfied at where we are. We're not there yet. We must keep working hard to be fostering the kind of godly community that Peter is describing. 
each one of us must make it our goal to relate to each other as Peter has taught us. And together we need to center on Jesus and to live out his truth in our relationships. Lest we descend into the petty politicking and self-serving, self-interested, self-motivated maneuvering that characterizes too many churches who have lost their focus on Christ and the gospel. Brothers and sisters, we are called to be a Christ-like community because that is a tangible picture of our ultimate inheritance. The ultimate blessing that we are heading for is being God's people, in God's place, under God's blessing and rule, together, where sin is no more. Participating in that ultimate, perfected community of love in the new creation. That is our inheritance. That's what we're called to. And now we express that in a little way in our life together. Psalm 34, which we read earlier, is a psalm about how God saved David from evil men, prefiguring how God was, was going to save Jesus from death at the hands of evil men by raising him to life. And the words from that psalm, which Peter quotes in verse 10 onward, describe the character of Jesus, and they also remind us to follow his example. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let, it, let, them, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. God is watching. He will ultimately vindicate the righteous and punish the evil. So like Jesus, let us keep our tongues from evil and pursue peace. Let us honor our God in our behavior, even in times of stress. And let us keep our conduct honorable, so that when people speak against us as evildoers, they may see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you will continue to be changing us into the image of your Son, even as we face the trials that we are in. Please help us remember who we are in Christ. Please help us to be focused on the grace that is to come. Please help us to live honorably in the midst of the difficulties of the present moment. Help us to follow Jesus in our homes and in our church communities. Help us to keep our tongues and our keyboards from evil and deceit. Help us turn away from evil and do good, to seek peace and pursue it, knowing and trusting that we can always leave the outcomes to you, for your face is against those who do evil, but your eyes are on the righteous and your ears attentive to their prayers. As we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.